Good morning, everybody. Um, as uh, so, I'm starting my timer so I don't take up the whole service. Like she did last service. Okay. Oh. <laughs> All right. If you have your Bibles, uh, go ahead and turn to Exodus three. And as you're getting there, and we're going to pick it up from the second part of verse 12. So Exodus, Exodus 3 and the second part of verse 12. Um, and as you're, you're turning to that, I just want to recap. Um, so Moses, you remember, gets recruited. He's a podunk sheep farmer. Scott <laughs> doesn't even own his sheep that he's herding. <laughs> it's his father-in-law's sheep, right? And God approaches him, and remember... Just to recap real quick, Moses, he kind of failed as a Hebrew. He was a poser Egyptian. His adoptive grandpa, Pharaoh, was like, I'm going to hunt you down and kill you because I just don't like you, and you killed one of my slave drivers, right? His own people have rejected his attempts to try and stick up for him and advocate, right? And so, and then he, he flees Egypt proper, and he goes and he marries the Midian, a Midianite woman, okay? Midianites are not... They're a foreigner. So remember what he named his son? Gershom. Remember what it means? <laughs> a foreigner in a foreign country. That's like, it's like a, like a double negative or something. That's, he's like, he, so that gives insight into the state of Moses' heart, okay? And then God approaches him at his lowest point <laughs> and says, guess what? Now's the time. And so that's where we're going to kind of pick up the story. Remember, and Moses says, okay, God. He says, you know, God calls him and shows, a, you know, appears in the, remember, what was it? Burning bush, right? And we have a picture real quick. Can we get that picture? This is a picture by Marc Chagall, who's a French impressionist. And um, so this is his rendering of the, his, uh, Moses' encounter with the, the bush. So here you have the bush. And some commentators say, and it looks real quick like, if I can draw your attention to Moses here, it looks like he's got horns. Those aren't horns. That was Chagall's thing when he painted um, religious paintings to show the power and manifestation of God. So that's what it is. It's not, they're not horns. <laughs> but um, so some of the commentators were saying the significance, because if I we breezed over it, but I just want to touch on it real quickly, that the burning bush that Moses sees in the beginning of, of uh, chapter three, why a bush? Like what's, what's the, and why is the bush not consumed? Like what's up with, was God just like, look at this cool trick I'm going to do. Um, a lot of commentators believe that the bush represents the Israelites and that they have put, been put through the ringer, okay, because they've been in captivity for hundreds of years, remember? And in chapter 2, um, Pharaoh, remember, he was, he was, he was committing, what, what is it when you wipe out a people group? Genocide. Genocide. He was, he was just full on like, we're going to commit genocide and wipe out the Israelites. And so a lot of commentators believe that the burning bush is symbolic of God saying, you know, the, the flame is Pharaoh and the bush is them. And, and God's saying, no, because I encompass you and surround you, you, you will not be burnt up. You will, you, will, you will last. You will persevere. Okay, yeah. So just a little for, for those of you that are fellow nerds, theology nerds, just want to write that down. All right, so let's dive in here. So we're going to look at the second part of uh, 12a. So Exodus 3, 12b. So God, Moses is like, who am I to do this? And remember how God responds? He, Moses, or God says in 12, I will be with you. That is his response. That is God's response to Moses. Like, 
uh, how, how is this going to happen? I don't think this is feasible. Do you know who I am? All right. And then what else does uh, God say to Moses? So uh, 3.12. And this will be the sign to you that it is I, that is Yahweh, who have sent to you. When you have brought the people out of Egypt, you will worship God on this mountain. So two things I just want to draw our attention to. And that's pretty much, you guys can kind of read the rest of this on your own. <laughs> but I, I want to kind of camp out on verse 12 here. There's two things. I think it's so cool. Can you imagine being Moses, right? This is your situation. This is your, remember we talked about the difference between facts and truth. Your, his facts are that he doesn't, he's a nobody. He's a nobody's nobody's nobody. He named his kid, you know, I'm a foreigner in a foreign land, right? And there's probably a good chance that Moses at this point in life is not thinking that he's going to do anything besides tend his father-in-law's sheep. And that he's like, this is as good as it gets. I'm fulfilling my calling. Here it is. And then God comes along when he's at his lowest and is like, Moses, guess what? I've got, I've got something for you to do. Just, like, just let's go there for a second. Put yourself in Moses' shoes. And how crazy would that be? Everything else around you, everything's broke. Nothing, nothing is working. There's no light, per se, on the horizon. Everything that you put your hand to has not worked. And God comes along, and he's like, guess what? This here, this is all going to be fine. And you, I'm raising you up to be the king of Israel. And that's a promise that God gives to Moses. Notice in the second part of 12, where it says, when you have brought the people out of Egypt, God doesn't say, if it happens, this is really risky, if we can make this work. God says, when, as if it is a done deal. Because guess what? In the economy of heaven, it is a done deal. And that's what I want us to get. When God declares something over us, it is a done deal, no matter what this looks like around us. Okay, so there's that. Number two, what is God wanting as a response from the people of Egypt, or from the, the people, the Israelites, when they are brought out of Egypt? You will worship God on this mountain. So they get liberated and freed, and then what is God, is God, is God like, okay, I want you to set up a democracy or figure out, you know, let's vote on your elders, who's going to be the vice president, who's going to be the president, who's going to be, you know, the foreign minister, where's the tabernacle going to go, how are you going to grid your streets, no, God says, come and worship me, and here's the deal, it's an invitation, remember, because who is God, he's a God of relationship, right? And the relationship is what sustains us. The relationship is what was going to sustain Moses, right? And so I think when, when, when God, God's like, I want you this to be the first act that you do as a people when I free you. That's going to mark your trajectory as the nation of Israel. And I think for our lives... When we go along and we're in a rough spot maybe and we're praying, we're like, God, we need breakthrough, breakthrough, breakthrough. 
that we really pause when God gives us the breakthrough. Not if, but when, because we serve a faithful God who makes a way where there is no way. Amen? So what I love here is like God is giving them an invitation and he's like, you create a tabernacle for me out of your praise and your thankfulness. And when you build that tabernacle of praise and thankfulness, guess what I'm going to do? I'm going to come in there and I'm going to take up residence. And I think the more we do that in our lives, the more thankfulness, it's this, it's this culture in our hearts that we have to cultivate. Where we say, God, even when we don't feel like there's anything, anything to be thankful for. But we set up that tabernacle and we say, God, I am creating this place, this space for you. I want you to enter in and I want you to be magnified. And it's like at that point, I mean, we can thank God and we can go through our day, but when we take the time to pause and carve it out of our busy, busy, crazy schedule, that is up, that's us living up to our end of the covenant, which is to love God and to worship him, not to do for him, but to be with him. My, my daughter, Sophia, so I've got ADD and um, had ADD as a kid and as a grown up. And, and uh, so often with Sophia, like, she'll be like, let's just sit home and hang out. I'm like, no, let's go do stuff. And she's like, I just want to sit in our pajamas and eat junk food and watch movies, mommy. I'm like, no, but we've got to do this and this. Mommy's got to do these errands. And, and she's like, I just, but I just want to hang out with us. Just let's sit together. And I think, not to make it colloquial and cute, but I think God is like, I want to spend time with you. I want to just sit down on the couch in our pajamas and just hang out together and spend time together. And see, when we do praise like this, when we create a tabernacle that God can come in and abide in through our thankfulness, man, we start building mansions of praise. And then God can come in and it changes our perspective and our vision and our vantage point. It doesn't just become, can you imagine? I mean, and Moses did, and Josh will get into this when he, when he gets up here in five minutes. Yeah. Um, <laughs> Moses does engage in this, right? And he's like, uh, I don't know if you noticed, but I don't speak so good. And I'm kind of a social reject from the Egyptian side of things, from the Hebrew side. You know, my own people rejected me, and I totally married outside of my people group. So there you go. And I don't even have my own sheep to tend, right? And can you imagine if Moses had stayed stuck there? And he almost does. Who else would have been leading the people out of uh, captivity? It's easy to get stuck in our circumstances. But see, thankfulness moves us out of a place of stuckness and helps us to get from here to here and look back from the vantage point of heaven as if it is already accomplished, okay? And this isn't, this isn't like psychobabble, like make yourself feel good stuff. This is in the Bible and it's called having the, the, the vision of heaven. It's a lens change, okay? We're, we're what, in this world, but we're what? Not of this world. Our, our, 
our true place of habitation is heaven. And we are called to bring heaven on earth. And that happens when we have that vision, that Christ-like vision. That Christ-like vision enables us to look at situations and say, God, this is impossible. But you're the God of the impossible. Nothing is impossible for you. And we invite him to come in and invade the situation. That's, that's not, see, what the, what the, you know, and I'm all about having a good attitude and positive attitude, but this is where the, the humanist stuff misses it. Like the, what is it called? The self-help stuff. Like I'm all for like helping yourself. But what it misses is, is that at a certain point we run out of juice and positivity. And there's actually, there's, there's, there's clinical facts that say we have a certain amount of serotonin and all these other chemicals that our body can produce. And then we max out. And that's it. And God, that's where God comes in. He's like, guess what? Because it's not on you. It's on me. Yeah. Lean into me. And I think if we get into the habit of doing that, man, it creates all kinds of amazing possibilities and amazing opportunities for God to come in. Not for us to deny reality, but for us to say, my God is more real than what I'm looking at right now. Wow. Wow. More real. And it. I mean, can you imagine the Israelites when they're exiting? They've got, you know, they're getting chased out. Chased out. with. They've got the Egyptians, and Pharaoh is like, I'm going to kill all of you guys. He's got a vendetta, especially against Moses. And they're getting chased, <laughs> and you're up against the war machine that is Egypt. And then you've got the Red Sea. It's not looking too good. <laughs> God has to come through. And that's what he is in the business of doing. And I just, I'm thankful for that. Um, God says he, in, he inhabits the praises of his people. He wants to tabernacle in our praises. So I just want to encourage you guys. He's a God of, you know, God, Josh will get into much more of this. But man, this week... Just remember, God is so faithful. You know, just real quick, one more thing. I have 47 seconds, so I'm going to do this real quick. Okay, verse 14, um, God says to Moses, you know, Moses, they go back and forth. It's like this ping pong match. And, you know, Moses is like, but, 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 and God says in verse 14, I am who I am. And Moses is like, well, if I go back to the Israelites, how do I, because remember how long is God, do you guys remember from last week how God, God's been kind of absent from being in the forefront for how many years? Remember? 400 years. Over 400 years. So the Israelites, so Moses can be like, guess what? Remember Yahweh? Well, guess what? He sent me. And so here I am. And we're going to, let's all get out of Egypt together. And so Yahweh, you know, Moses is like, how do I convince them that this is real and that you're real and that I'm real? And what do we do? And I love God's response. He says in verse 14, tell them I am who I am. I am has sent you. And then he, you know, in the verse 15, he connects it to um, I am the God of uh, your fathers, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, right? Okay, this is what I love, though. The, the Hebrew isn't rendered properly here. And if we were to read it in the Hebrew, it would say, I cause to be because I cause to be. Just let's pause on that for a second and meditate. I God's response to Moses is, I cause to be because I cause to be. 
God is all-sustaining. He is the same person that created Adam and Eve. He created gravity and time. He's constant and unchanging. He's a God of relationship, and he's a God of abiding. And his very word sustains. And I think it's really neat that he's like, Moses, all you have to say to them is, I am that I am. I am who I am. I cause to be because I cause to be. I'm it. That's good enough. Go forward with that. And so this week, if you're going through your week and you're just feeling discouraged, remember God is because he is. Period. You don't have to add anything onto it. You don't have to dress it up. That's it. That's where you park it. All right, I'm going to turn it over to my hot All husband, right. honey. There she is. Not bad, huh? Good job, babe. All right, so um, coming off of what Mako said, uh, she didn't get into it, but there's a covenantal relationship that Moses is engaged in with God. And it's extremely important. And God's actually calling every believer into a type of covenantal relationship. It's a bit different than what Moses was called into. But we see Moses in a relationship with God, and we see the back and forth, right? God actually makes a place for Moses to disagree or not accept the assignment, and we see it. It comes in threes, and comes in patterns. It's like, uh, who am I? I can't do this. Um, what am I to say to your people that, I, that you say I'm going to set free? And God's response to all of Moses' insecurities is, what is in your hand? What do you have to work with? Don't say you can't do it. You have something in your hand. And it's actually the, rod, the, the staff of God, the rod of God. You've got, you've got what you need in your hand. Oh, God, I can't do it because I, I can't speak well. Uh, we think that Moses might have had a speech impediment or stuttered or... We do know that the Egyptians were like the French with their language. They loved their language, and it was eloquent to them. And so there might have been some insecurity in that. But regardless, that was Moses' excuse. I cannot use my, my language to communicate what you want me to communicate to these people. And, what, and God says, I created the mouth. I created language. So that's really no excuse either. And Moses says, okay, you're right. And then at the end of four, Moses says something that we say. See, this isn't just a biblical story. I believe it's a historical story too, but it's not just a historical story. This is a metaphor of us. This is what we do. This is how we talk to God. And eventually Moses just says, can you just send somebody else to do it? <laughs> right? The dialogue and all the excuses and all the reasons why and God comforts and counsels like he's in a counseling session. You can do it. He's on a cheerleading session. God's like being Tony Robbins to Moses right now. You can do this. And, and he finally just says, you know what? I just don't want to. Can't you just send somebody else? And this is the covenantal relationship breakdown. And guess what God does? His anger burns against Moses. Wait, What? I thought God was a good God. I thought he doesn't get angry. Well, he, he actually does. So what I want to actually 
get into today and maybe next week is that there is a healthy fear of God that we need to begin to walk in. Like we just can't take our Lord and Savior flippantly. When he's called us into relationship, he means it. So somehow Moses gets the picture because the next scene in chapter 4, he begins to step into his assignment, into his destiny. He has the most amazing assignment, and it's yours too. And that's to save the lost, to set free those that are in bondage. They were in literal bondage, but our society is in spiritual bondage. So Moses has this assignment, and this is what he does. This is the most mysterious passage in the Bible. Scholars don't quite understand what it all means. It makes you question um, the very motives of God, or maybe even the character of God. You can do it, but what we do know about God's character, it is he is constant. He is the same yesterday, today, and tomorrow. And God is spirit, and God is love. Everything that he does comes from a motivation of love. But listen to this. Uh, this is chapter 4. And uh, um, verse 21. The Lord said to Moses, when you return to Egypt... See that you perform before Pharaoh all the, the wonders I have given you the power to do. So this is God's power. It's going to flow through Moses. He is God's conduit. But I will harden Pharaoh's heart. Then say to Pharaoh, this is what the Lord says. Israel is my firstborn son. I told you to let my son go so that, go so that he may worship me. But you refuse to let him go. Uh, the Pharaoh is a, he's a metaphor for the devil, by the way. Verse 24, Moses gets it. He goes on his assignment. He's on his way. He's going into Egypt from Midian. Oh, by the way, who did he marry? We've been following along and reading along. Who did Moses marry? Zipporah. Uh, she's a Midianite, a Cushite. She is not a Hebrew gal. It's interesting. Maybe there was a little bit of wiggle room because um, uh, Jethro, the Midianites were the descendants of Abraham's uh, wife, Keturah. So Keturah gave birth to you know, a bunch of people and they developed the nation of Midian. And we, we, we know that the culture existed. We just don't know exactly what they looked like. They might, we know that they were dark-skinned. So they could have been Arab, but there's even theory that they might have been Ethiopian in culture. We don't know. But the point is, is we've got an interracial marriage going on. And I don't know if you've noticed, but I kind of support interracial marriages. Yeah? Let's just mix up that gene pool a little bit. There we go. And God's okay with it, too. At least he is here. As we're going to see the story and the narrative continues, uh, he, is, he is building up a people of God, and actually the Midianites are not a good uh, choice. Uh, for marriage, and that's a different story altogether. The reasons are completely different. Uh, the Midianites and the Moabites become some of the evilest, nastiest people on the planet, ironically. But Zipporah is a Midianite, and her, she's basically a pastor's kid. 
And maybe Jethro had some understanding of who Yahweh was. He even instructs Moses on how to organize his, God's people. So, here we go. At a lodging place. This is the mysterious part. Here's the, the fascinating part. At a lodging place on the way, the Lord met Moses. You ready? And he's about to kill him. Wait, what? Moses is tapping into his assignment. He's being obedient. He's being faithful. And why would God want to kill him anyway? He's actually doing what he's been told to do. And this, it's mysterious because we don't, we're not quite sure like, how God is showing up to kill him. So is it theophanies, which would be like, kind of like Jesus in a sense, but is it the angel of the Lord? Is it like a, like a physical representation of God that's coming in, like a face-to-face encounter? I believe that this is probably what's going on because this, the response that we're going to read about in a second. But God shows up, and like, there's something not right in the covenant. There's something not right with the relationship. God's going to kill him. That's a little scary, right? Why? Why? Guess who gets it? Zipporah gets it. She knows why. She knows exactly why. All right, if you've got kids in the audience, you, may, you might want to send them to Sunday school right now. This is adult talk here, I guess. Nothing they don't see on TV. All right? But Zipporah took a flint knife and cut off her son's foreskin and touched Moses's. Your Bible says it's Moses, but it's actually he. We're not quite sure exactly who he is. And touched Moses's feet with it. What? This is really weird. What? And we know that the, that the kids, she's got two kids, uh, Gershom and Eliezer, and they're, they're at least two years old. They could be older, maybe eight or nine. What? That will send you to therapy, right? You thought you had problems with your mom. How would you, right? Zipporah gets a hold of one of these boys. We don't know which one. And she circumcised him. She's like, come here, boy. This is going to hurt you a lot more than it's going to hurt me. Not the other way around, right? Usually parents say, well, I'm going to give you a spanking. But this is going to hurt me more than it's going to hurt you. No, Zipporah didn't say that. No, this is going to hurt, son. Do you know why it's going to hurt? It's because your dad screwed up. Your dad messed up. Your dad blew it. He wasn't paying attention to the details. Because the details are kind of important for the Lord. This little tiny thing, this mark on the flesh that separates God's people from everybody else. It's important to God. The covenant is important to God. Your dad forgot about the detail. That's why. Your dad disrespected the covenant. That's why God's going to kill him, unless we do this really awkward thing to you right now. Trippy, huh? Zipporah gets it. Does she think about it? Does she ponder? And she acts in an instant. Like the bravery of this pagan 
the bravery of this foreigner who's not even a Hebrew. She understands and she knows who God is and she takes God seriously. Zipporah is a, she's a heroine right now. She saves her husband's life. Do you see that? Like there is a love there that's just deeper than, well, this is the love that we're called to when we go into a marriage relationship. Your, your spouse should be willing to die for you. Your spouse should be willing to step in the gap if God's about ready to kill your husband. Not that he would do that, but you never know. <laughs> Some uncomfortable chuckles there. Now he's, yesterday, he's the same yesterday, today, and tomorrow. He takes this stuff seriously. God takes sin seriously. She's brave. Like, she gets between God and her man. What? And again, we don't know for sure, but she takes the foreskin and she touches the feet. Of, and it says him. My Bible says Moses, but again, the scholars don't know. So the him could be Moses. It could be her poor son, Gershom, who's probably screaming right now. Or it could be the angel of the Lord himself. And then she says something that lets us into the wisdom of a woman. Uh, did you know that in the Old Testament, wisdom is personified in the female gender? I don't know quite sure why they changed it when they moved over into the New Testament. But wisdom, she calls out in the streets. And this woman was wise because she has wisdom that is beyond her knowledge. And she taps into the spiritual realm and she says something that is 100% New Testament revelation. She says, he is a bridegroom of blood to me. Or he is a husband of blood to me. This covenant, this, this silly little foreskin thing is important to God. He is a blood covenant. He is a husband of blood to me. This mark on the flesh, whatever. Like, God, can't you just give us a tattoo instead? How about a nose ring or something? And I mean, just anything. But she gets it. And she takes place in a sacred ritual. That's what is really going on here. It's like a church act. Like you're participating in a sacred ritual. Sometimes wives come to church by themselves and they t partake in a sacred ritual yes. without their Moses. So she's doing the job that her husband should do. She's partaking in a sacred ritual in the circumcision of her son. Do you see it? You are a bridegroom of blood to me, Moses. And she does something that we all need to get. We all have difficult people in our lives. We all have people that are failing God in our lives. Maybe we're failing God. Of course we are. But what I'm saying is we all, we all see people that are not living up to the right standard or whatever it may be. And what God is calling you to do for those that are lost in your life or those that pull a Moses and make excuses and say, not me, send somebody else. What God is saying to do is to be like Zipporah and see that individual as God sees them from heaven. She sees Moses, and Moses didn't even see himself in the same way. She sees Moses as God does. He is a bridegroom of blood to me. 
he is the one that is called to set these captives free. You know what she actually saw in Moses? She saw Jesus. Jesus is our bridegroom of blood. He is our husband of blood. We are the church. We are the bride of Christ. Zipporah, the pagan gal, sees this. Saves her husband's life. This is, hopefully I'm going to boil it down real quick. Jesus is the better Moses. Jesus is the better Moses. Jesus is the better Abraham. Jesus is the better Isaac, the better Jacob, the better David, the better Solomon. Jesus is better. And what, what Moses was doing in setting people free was just acting like Jesus. He was being a Christian, a little Jesus. But, Mo, but Sephora saw him as the actual bridegroom of blood. To set a captive people free. She takes a huge risk in saving her husband's call and destiny. And it's probably one of the most profound acts of love in the Bible. They say that the covenant is, is, is law, right? It's, it's a relationship that is all spelled out. They spell it out eventually by the Ten Commandments, and we get the Torah, and we get all these rules, and we get this, this covenantal relationship with God. If you serve me, then I'll bless you, and we get it. But there's, a, there's a, a power that's greater than a covenantal law, and that's love. In 2 Peter 4, it says, Love each other deeply. Husbands and wives, love each other deeply. Love your kids deeply. Uh, even when they make mistakes. Even when they don't pay attention to the details and they blow it. Love each other deeply. What's the next part of the scripture? Because love covers a multitude of sin. Love will save your spouse from death. Love will save your kids from making bad decisions. Love covers a multitude of sin. The Lord your God is with you. The mighty warrior who saves. In his love, he will no longer rebuke you for your sin. Huh? See, when we're in love, we don't get rebuked for our sin. We get our sins forgiven. That's what the bridegroom of blood does. You know, and sometimes in marriage and in relationship, when the other person is not, is messing off or whatever. How many people just want God to judge them? God, just give them what they deserve. God, pour out your wrath on them, right? But Sephora's say, no, no. God's wrath is meant for humankind, but Jesus took it all on the cross because he was the bridegroom of blood for us. You see, Moses deserved God's wrath, but Zipporah saw a New Testament reality, the reality of love. If I get the rest of the band to come on up, sorry for keeping you late. I hope it was worth it. Let's pray.
I get everybody to stand. And if you need to know this Jesus, if you need to know this bridegroom of blood, just every eye closed, every head bowed. If you don't know Jesus and you want to make him the Lord of your life for the very first time, now is your opportunity. And if, if you too, feel too insecure to raise your hand, grab me after service. Is there anybody that needs to know the bridegroom of blood today? Awesome. Now, I'm going to pray for everybody to be able to have the courage to stand in the gap at a moment's notice. If you love, you don't analyze. If you love, you just act. If you love, you just take a risk. If you love, you just sacrifice. That's what lovers of the love of, of God do. So God, right now, we just pray strength into our families, into our relationships. God, there, there are Moseses in the room. There's insecure Moseses, both female Moseses and male Moseses. We've all are insecure. We all come up with excuses. We all say, ah, just send somebody else. But you are calling us. So help us to go into our calling and be like Christ, to act like Christ, to do what he did. To love the unlovely and to forgive the unforgivable. We just pray that you just quicken our hearts today in your name, Lord Jesus, and bless us. Continue to unwrap the secrets of your word. Touch us, Lord.